my son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, hello, welcome to Why Not Mint Money. I'm Satya Suntanam from Mint's personal finance team. In this podcast, we'll get to know if the Indian stock markets are overvalued. This was the topic of a panel discussion at the Mint India Investment Summit 2023 held recently. The four-member panel had experts from the fund management industry. Nilesh Shah, MD of Kotak AMC, Jitendra Doshi, co-founder and CIO of Enam Asset Management, Saurabh Mukherjee, founder and chief investment officer at Marcellus Investment Managers, and Roshi Jain, fund manager from HDFC AMC are in the panel, and I moderated this session. The panel discussed the resilience and long-term growth drivers of the Indian economy and deliberated on how Indian stocks are currently priced at fair valuations for the long term and why stock selection is the key aspect in investing. Here's the recording of the session. Welcome to Why Not Mint Money, a personal finance podcast where we help you understand basic money concepts and share strategies for you to build your wealth. So let's get started with your money journey. Well, I repeat, where will the Indian stock markets end up in 2023 and what will this really mean for India Inc and its capital raising plans? So first up, we'll get back to the knowledge sessions and then we'll party a little later. But let me also quickly invite our amazing set of speakers on stage even as the bell continues to ring. We're used to that with regard to our stock market as well. Uh, but first up, let me please invite on stage Jitain Doshi, co-founder and CIO in our asset management. May I also please invite Roshi Jain, senior fund manager, equities, HDFC AMC. I'd like to further invite Nilesh Shah, managing director, Kotak Mahindra Asset Management. Saurabh Mukherjee, founder and chief investment officer, Marcellus Investment Managers. And to spearhead the session, we have with us Satya Sontanam, senior content creator, Mint. All right, ladies and gentlemen, one more time, I think. Uh, we have enjoyed the tea coffee. We are getting up for the party in the evening. But before that, can we have a beautiful round of applause to also welcome all of our speakers. Let's keep that applause going. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. I'm going to quickly hand it over to you, Satya. Over Thank you. There. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and uh, respected speakers who needs no introduction here. Thank you so much for joining in. And I have to say I'm really, really excited to sit here with you all face to face, learning about uh, from your uh, many years of experience in the stock market on what are the various factors at play for the stock markets today. And we'll also know whether the Indian stock markets are overvalued today. Of course, again, what is it to you and me? Um, you know, and what is the asset class like, equity asset class like uh, for the short term and also the long term. And you may look at me with dissent saying what does it mean by investing in short term for equity, but it is just to set expectations on what is the return and volatility like in the short term from the equity asset class. 
So, uh, but before going that, um, it is uh, only to be expected to start the discussion with what's happening globally. Maybe we'll start with uh, what's happening with SVB and Credit Suisse. And um, also, what's more, and uh, what is the impact going to be on Indian markets and Indian economy? Maybe we'll start in order, Mr. Jitin. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me uh, to speak. Uh, friends, I think uh, she's asking me to begin with what's happening globally. And I think it's very interesting that whatever is happening globally uh, is just reinforcing our thought process and our belief that India is on the right track. Uh, we could never have expected such sort of accidents in our system. Uh, it only goes to show how well regulated we are. Uh, I would only say that, you know, we are blessed to have a very strong Reserve Bank of India, a regulator as good as SEBI, uh, the Ministry of Finance is doing a very, very good job. And uh, only one wonders that what's really happening in that part of the world, because somebody must have really worked very, very hard to take the market cap of Credit Suisse from probably 90 billion Swiss francs to 6, 7 billion at its low. So I think uh, one only, this only goes to show how recklessly those systems are and, you know, how risk management is actually not really played out out there, uh, how conservative our banking system is, how solid we are. And it only goes to show that, you know, while we always thought that we were full of uh, regulatory challenges in India, I today think that's a very big blessing. And uh, this has all happened because I think in the West, with interest rates being as low as zero and in some parts of the world negative, I think that has forced people to actually take huge leverage to make money, which is where I think the biggest risk was there in the system globally. And that is something that's coming home to roost. So in our view, I think uh, whatever is happening currently globally uh, is just start of a cycle where you will see the pain uh, going on for many, many years. And uh, just as India is on a structural, uh, you know, I would say structural climb, we are moving very well. And I see one or two great decades of growth for India. Uh, similarly, I think the West, especially Europe, is in a structural downturn and it may take many decades for it to come out uh, from where they are today. So I think it's, you know, in a sense, uh, it, these are all warning signals for us, but it's good news. Uh, India stands out very well and I think being the country which is now looking one of the most prosperous countries offering such phenomenal growth ahead, uh, this only makes our case better for being well-governed, uh, well-regulated, and to actually be a country uh, that uh, should attract huge capital going forward. Sure, sure. And I was watching one video in the morning and in which uh, one of the industry experts said that uh, all the, uh, you know, when markets are in a euphoric stage, nothing goes as disciplined. Only when the markets are bleak, everything goes disciplined and people uh, see how disciplined it is. Uh, Nilesh, uh, you know, what do you see, what do you think uh, is the reason for such crisis globally? Is it because of no discipline in uh, how the matters are dealt with globally, uh, such crisis happen? In 2008, Nobel laureate Joseph Stiglitz made a statement about RBI Governor Dr. Y.V. Reddy. If Dr. Y.V. Reddy was Fed governor, subprime crisis would not have happened. Now, I am no Joseph Stiglitz. I am unlikely ever to be a Nobel laureate. But I think all of us will agree that if 
Mr. Shakti Kanta Das would have been Fed Governor, SVB would not have happened. Jitin Bhai has mentioned many things. I just want to add a few things. SVB was 16th largest bank in America. Sorry, I have to take this call. Maybe meanwhile we'll get views from uh, Ms. Roshi. Roshi? No, I think um, I agree with Jitin. I, I mean, there is no doubt that uh, the way uh, monetary policy in India and banking regulation has worked over the last few years has been uh, typical of first world style of functioning, which unfortunately did not happen in the first world. So it's quite an irony in that sense. Um, but I'd also like to say this. Uh, it's often said, never let a crisis go waste. And I think that's exactly what India did because we went through uh, fairly volatile times with weak balance sheets at an aggregate level uh, about uh, a decade ago perhaps, post-GFC when we saw a lot of NPAs building up in India, we saw uh, a current account crisis as well. And I think post that we've seen uh, both uh, at the government level as well as at corporate level, steps taken to sort of strengthen the structural fabric, uh, whether it's uh, business models of banks, for example, uh, whether at, from a country level it's the way monetary policy has been dealt with. Uh, and I think we are just seeing the benefits of that come through. Um, and uh, to my mind, many of these things to us seem to be point, uh, a point in time, you know, what happened in the last two years was what helped the country navigate the crisis. I, I don't necessarily think that's how it is. I think it's the culmination of work that was put in both by regulatory institutions, by governments, by companies, uh, as a result of uh, weaknesses that we saw about a decade ago. Uh, and uh, to my mind, uh, that's, uh, you know, uh, like I said, we did, it's a good thing that we did not let the crisis that we saw in the earlier part of the, uh, of the previous decade go waste. Uh, and I therefore feel that from a structural perspective, uh, India is uh, fairly well positioned. Um, you know, the next decade is ours for the taking, I feel. Great, great. <laughs> Saurabh, what do you think? What could have uh, actually uh, led to the situation? So look, I think every 10 years, America blows up. There's nothing new there. I don't think that's the story of the moment. So they blew up late 80s. They had the savings and loan crisis in America. I think 98, they had LTCM blowing up. 2008, everybody knows what happened. And therefore, what's happening in America today is par for the course. This is not a big story to my mind. America Fatrai is a is an old story. I think the real, the real story of the moment, I think when we look back at our careers, say 10, 20 years hence, we will remember 2023-24 as, as the year in which basically the world went to war without weapons. What's happening between America and China is very serious. It is effectively war without weapons and it has huge ramifications for us as a country. So let's take two, two developments from the last couple of weeks, right? So around six months ago, uh, the European Union, I'm sure at the behest of the Americans, banned, banned the, the export of ASML's machines, ASML's lithography machines to, to America. ASML makes, for every single person in this room who has a phone or a tablet, the etchings on your silicon wafer, the etchings on your chip all come from one company, ASML. Six months ago, European Union said uh, ASML, which is based in Holland, partly Holland, partly America, 
European Union said no more ASML machines will be exported to China. Right? Each ASML machine is roughly $300 million. Each ASML machine has 1,50,000 parts in it. 40,000 parts are made exclusively for ASML. Right? It's a, it's a unique machine. It's a machine which controls the world. ASML's extreme uh, ultraviolet lithography machines control the world. The world economy comes to an end. We, in a country or a country where a country which can't get ASML machines comes to a grinding halt. So six months ago, uh, European Union said ASML is prohibited now for selling to China the cutting-edge lithography machines. Last week was even more dramatic. Last week, European Union said, again, I'm sure at the behest of the Americans, that even the ASML machines which are one generation behind, the ASML machines which say make, which are used to etch the chips in say iPhone 6, 7, 8, those are also now banned. Effectively, the, the Western world is saying, we will send China back to the Stone Age as quickly as possible by making sure their semiconductor manufacturing comes to a comes to a halt, right? And you can see the impact of that. As soon as the six-month six old ASML announcement came, as soon as that came, Apple said, a quarter of iPhone production, a quarter of iPhone, remember Apple makes around $250 billion worth of uh, phones and pads. So quarter moving to India, which was the announce, announcement six months ago, means basically $50 billion worth of iPhone and iPad production moves to India. That's 2% of Indian GDP, right? I reckon in the next few weeks we will see more. I think yesterday they announced, yesterday Apple announced AirPods now. AirPods are going to move to India. Overall, for, uh, mobile phone industry is $600 billion. Even if you assume we get 10% of that, that's a $60 billion industry that will come up in the next few years, right? So that's one dimension of the, the war that is brewing between China and America. And I think this will, you just keep watching this space, there's plenty that's going to happen there. The other dimension is, is pharma, right? So, so we, we have some investments in Indian API manufacturers, we have some investments in our global portfolio and Western companies that make the equipment which go into pharma manufacturing. And when we speak to the Western pharma majors, when we speak to the Western pharma majors headquarters in America and Europe, all of them say there are clear orders from the powers that be in America that buy less API from China, buy more API from India. And if you go to, say, if, you, if right now you fly to Baroda, Surat, Vapi, you will see a whole new industry coming up, which is ramping up API production with China in mind. So, sorry, with America in mind, with China, the China-America rivalry brewing. So, just again putting some numbers around this, China's API manufacturing industry is $220 billion. Our API industry, Satya, is $20 billion. Right? There's is 10 times larger. Even if 10% moves from there to here, we're going to double. Uh, API manufacturing in India. So I think that the story of the moment is not Silicon Valley, Bank or Credit Suisse. This is old hat. Right? Few banks will blow up, a few will be rescued. The story of the moment, the tectonic plate on which the world is shifting is, the West is pulling away from China. That opens up manufacturing opportunities to the tune of, I would say, half a trillion to a trillion dollars. If we can even grab 300 billion dollars of that, that's a 10% of GDP uplift, which I think comes towards us over the next two to three years. It brings with it its own challenges, but I think this is what will define the next two, three, four years in India. I agree with Roshi, the decade belongs to us, but the reason the decade belongs to us is China and Xi have completely blown up the story and gone to war with the West, and that opens up colossal opportunities for us. And talking about the stock market valuations, um, one to two years back when the interest rates are lower, almost 
everybody unanimously agreed that the valuations will come down and exactly so when the interest rates started to move up the uh, you know of course uh, it happened with a bit of lag in india the stock market corrected and the valuations have come down uh, to an extent um, now how does it look compared to global pairs and also with respect to its historical averages jitin i think you know we have been we have been comparing ourselves with the west and probably many other emerging markets in the last couple of years but i think what one must note is that that period to compare ourselves with some of these economies is now behind us india is charting a growth path of its own uh, you must look at the resilience of all the business models uh, what our uh, companies have gone through uh, you also must see how durable the business models are the longevity of its earnings i am very happy to say that it's not that you know our premium has gone up but it's just that the you know valuations of the other countries have gone down so we look a little more expensive and for a country of our size with the kind of growth prospects that we have the clarity the government is providing us next two decades look very promising i think there there is hardly any premium on the uh, you know valuations i think one must take a longer term view unfortunately a lot of us see uh, television every day and this becomes a topic of discussion and everybody is too worried about what's happening on a daily weekly or a monthly basis despite calling ourselves long term investors i would say uh, you know eyes closed take a look at high quality businesses uh, that have very strong moats uh, that have a very strong uh, and long runway for growth and i don't worry about the volatility that you're seeing in the market i think that's going to be always there Uh, if there is volatility if there is a fall it's only an opportunity to uh, deploy additional capital but i think if you take a look at where india is today uh, i don't think we were ever so good and ever so promising could you have all imagined that the inflation rate in india is lower than uh, many parts of the west i couldn't have dreamt of it 10 years ago uh, last 5 years we are enjoying a corporate tax rate of 25.17% Uh, absolutely undisturbed now isn't that a very very strong promise uh, from our government uh, to provide consistency stability uh, to provide uh, all the uh, you know encouragement to replow the profits now something like this if you ask me and interest rates i think the west is going from 0 to 5% so of course there's a lot of pain uh, we are going from 4 to 6 we were always there at 6 6 and a half we coming back to Uh, we've gone down to four, four and a half. Going back to six, six and a half. It's business as usual. So I don't think we should be so perturbed. Ultimately, uh, you know, equity markets are driven by earnings and the potential. I don't think any other country, any other large economy in the world, is offering the kind of growth prospects that India is offering today. So I think eyes closed. Don't worry about you know one year, six months. But if you take a multi-year view, then this is the place to be. And of course if you are buying a good business which everybody loves to own i'm sure it will quote at a little bit of a premium valuation but what are we comparing ourselves to we are comparing ourselves to countries where actually they are in a declining mode structurally they are going down and india has seen tremendous amount of pain between 2014 and 19 because the current administration was doing a clean up between 2019 and 23 despite losing two years in covid one year with very high energy and uh, you know energy prices and a war and lots of other issues and challenges india is still standing tall now all of this actually should tell you uh, the resiliency that we have built in our economy 
the kind of work that the government has done and the kind of strength that our companies have uh, built. They have used all these last 9-10 years to really uh, you know, build a very strong business model and the outcome of that will be seen in the years ahead. So I think I'm, I'm, I'm very clear this premium will remain. It's not a premium from uh, you know, the absolute premium point of view, but the rest of the world will go to a discount, you know, wherever the growth prospects aren't there. So I, I look at it very differently. I think it's a golden opportunity. Uh, and uh, if you have a lot more foreign selling, uh, it's good. Uh, they're, they're giving an opportunity for us to own those businesses. Yeah. So I think, you know, we, I remain very, very bullish and structurally India is on a new terrain. So I think remember that while you're investing. Don't try to judge it with the past periods. Yeah, I was uh, having one discussion during uh, lunch with someone and they were saying, the popular saying that they always refer to, the best time to invest is 10 years ago and again it is now. <laughs> I'm sure you would agree with that. Uh, Mr. Mr. Nilesh, uh, you want to add anything on that about the valuations? So, beauty is in the eye of beholder. What looks expensive to me could look cheap to you. And uh, as Chitin Bhai mentioned, undoubtedly our valuation on a one-year basis does look higher than the others. But that is because we had a three-idiot movement in our market. If you have seen that iconic movie, Sarman Joshi, Madhavan and Amir Khan were standing in one line and professor asked them to step up for doing something. Sarman Joshi stood where he was, but Amir Khan and Madhavan took a step back and that's how Sarman Joshi was ahead. So, we were standing the valuation, mein, but everyone else fell down. So, it looks like we are ahead, but we are where we were. Second, on a one-year basis, undoubtedly India looks expensive vis-a-vis -vis rest of the world. But you take a five-year view, and suddenly we look cheapest emerging market vis-a-vis -vis others. So again, it's relative to people, what they see. I'll give you a small example to substantiate what Jitin Bhai mentioned. The state in which we are sitting right now, Maharashtra, Today, Maharashtra's GDP is equal to what whole of India's GDP was in 2005. In 17 years, Maharashtra has reached where yesterday India was. In 2001, UP and Uttarakhand were combined. Today's combined UP, Uttarakhand GDP is where India was in 2001. And three states, Tamil Nadu, Gujarat and Karnataka, are where India was in 2000. In 20 years, rounded off, these five states have produced what India was producing yesterday. Can we assume that over next 15, 20, 25 years, these five states will produce what India is producing today? If all of us, all of us continue to work as hard, I think it is eminently achievable. Now in which part of the world you could see states becoming as big as the country with reasonable amount of assurance? People who buy into that story will not find India valuation expensive. But people who are doing relative trade, they may find India expensive on a one-year basis. And one final point, 
in most emerging markets or developed markets, entry is easy. You want to buy $10 billion worth of stock, people will come and sell it to you. Exit is difficult. Very recently, very noted emerging market guru, Dr. Mark Mobius mentioned that he is unable to take money out of China, which has apparently $3 trillion of FX reserves. And Dr. Mobius is, would not be asking taking out trillions dollar, it will not be billion dollar, it will be few million dollar. And yet, he is not able to take out. So in most emerging market, developed market, entry is easy, exit is difficult. In India, exit is easy. Between October 22 to October 21 to March 22, foreigners would have taken rounded of 35 billion dollar. They could take out easily. There's not even one complaint by any investor that I'm unable to take money out of India. In one financial services firm, they sold $8 billion worth of stock and they could get out at a price. In India, in my humble opinion, entry is difficult. That $8 billion worth of stock in the financial institution, if the FPIs want to buy today, I don't think so they are going to get it without moving the prices up significantly. So hopefully people will remember the story that in India states are becoming as big as a country. This market may look expensive on a one-year basis, but on a five-year basis it is the cheapest emerging market. And this is the market where exit is easy, entry is difficult. Well put, Nilesh. And Roshid, do you believe, do you agree that uh, at least in the long term our uh, valuations look cheaper or fair? So let me, uh, let me give an another anecdote. Uh, I'll wear my fund manager's hat and uh, let me give you a few data points. I think uh, Nilesh and Jitain have uh, made the macro perspective extremely clear. So uh, last year, calendar 2022, uh, Nifty gave uh, about a 4 four to five percent kind of return, which uh, it sounds unexciting, of course. And, and we're talking about Nifty 50, right? So liquidity biases, under-researched biases, et cetera, are all out of the equation. These are all names that we know well. Well-researched liquidity is not an issue. You decompose the performance of that 50-stock basket. I'm removing outliers. And you will find that the difference in return performance between the best performing and the worst performing, removing outliers, is 90%. So in a year where the market gave you 4%, the best perform again, I'm removing the outlier and I say this because when you look at the breakdown, uh, you know, you will realize why I'm removing the outlier. The best performing stock gave you 50%. The worst performing stock was down 37%. So. I think while, of course, we, there, are no, uh, there are no questions around how attractive uh, the long-term potential for the Indian market is, I think stock selection is even more critical. And I think that's where perhaps as investors, we tend to obsess so much about aggregate valuations, aggregate growth, that we lose the plot because we are, we are after all, going to be buying a portfolio of 30 to 50 stocks, maybe, you know, slightly more. Uh, and that's where I think the importance of having an investment framework, 
looking at companies uh, that can participate in this very exciting growth story that uh, India offers, I think it's important to be able to identify those companies and take advantage uh, of stock selection in order to create alpha and not overly obsess about aggregate valuations, aggregate growth and so on and so forth. Um, the other point I also want to make is this. I think there are very few countries in the world which offer this kind of growth profile in a, in a manner as diversified as India offers. Uh, we are not single trick ponies. Uh, I think you will be able to buy uh, stocks to play the consumption theme, to play the infrastructure theme, manufacturing theme, export theme. So it's possible to also create a portfolio which is fairly diversified. And I, I stress this point because risk management is extremely critical for uh, portfolio creation. So I think the ability to be bottom-up stock selectors and to do it in a risk-mitigated way, I think India offers that very stellar advantage. Um, and I think you know that's what perhaps also is something that plays very strongly in India's favor. Sure, sure. Saurabh, I'm sure you will, uh, no wonder you will say that stock selection is very important. Uh, a word no, I was going to say something else. I was going to say that, so uh, through COVID, obviously, we couldn't travel much abroad. So there were some incoming calls from American endowments that we used to take. And then after COVID, say, October 21, I started traveling abroad too, to meet the American endowments and pension funds and so on. And uh, they see the situation as very different. So just to give you a sense of how differently they see it, um, so I remember around six months ago, I was sitting in Chicago, speaking to a large endowment, the lady who runs it. You know, she studied in a very prestigious American university, extremely well-read um, uh, American lady. So she'd never been to India. Uh, she's invested somewhat in emerging markets through GEMS Fund, Global Emerging Market Funds. So I was making the case for, to her, much like, you know, Roshi, Nilesh Bhai, Jitin Bhai, that you should look at us seriously. So she said, um, she said, uh, is it possible for me to go to India without a bodyguard? So, so I didn't quite know, you know, how to deal with it, right? Because her perception was she's going to get off the flight and somebody's going to attack her. So I explained to her that, you know, it's a big country and there are parts of the country which are unsafe. But by and large, it's a safe country and city like Bombay shouldn't have any problem. She then said, uh, am I expected to uh, put on the veil when I go to India? So I said, ma'am, uh, last I knew that wasn't the requirement, right? And I'm talking here about the American elite. I'm not talking about some, you know, uh, low-income person in the back of beyond, right? That is the level of apathy we face, right? So, and hence, my reckoning is there's only one way this FII flow story is going to go, and it's going to go up. And it's going to go up so big time that here China, may, that's three and a half trillion that's invested in China. China has three and a half trillion dollars of foreign investment. We have 0.6 trillion. Right? The extent to which it will go up in the next 10 years, I don't think people will be asking me about security guards and whales uh, uh, five years hence. Neither will they be asking you, Satya. So, so the level of apathy in the West, China has done such a brilliant job of utterly brainwashing the West. Right? Utterly brainwashing the West. So if you open up Bloomberg, it's a very interesting analysis. And I exhort all of you to do it. You know, uh, 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 legendary investors like the folks on my left, I exhort them to do it. And we, we need to spread the message. Simple analysis. You open up Bloomberg, you look, at you look at companies which in the last 20 years have had a decadal run of double-digit revenue growth and say double-digit ROC. Right? Sensible numbers, double-digit ROC and double-digit revenue growth for 10 years, right? Um, 
India has won 40 such companies, 10-year consecutive of 10 year of 10, 10, 10, 10, 10 percent rev growth ROC and and um, and uh, 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 over a 10-year period. India has 140 such companies. China has 130 such companies. Remember, the economy is four times or five times larger than us. So even with an economy five times larger than us, they don't have more companies than us which grow at 10, 10, 10. No other EM is in the picture. So Taiwan, Korea, Brazil, irrelevant, right? Now, take those 140 China, Indian companies, 130 Chinese companies who had a good run fundamentally. The Indian companies have compounded wealth at 24% over the last 20 years. The Chinese companies have compounded wealth at 12%. This is the best that China has to offer, is 12%. And yet, they have 3.5 trillion of American money. I don't think any American are asking some Chinese fund manager, security guard chahiye yani. So they've done a brilliant job, the Chinese have, of utterly brainwashing the West. We also need to step on our, step on the accelerator on that. Yeah, they are very inspiring statistics and for good or bad, it's very unfortunate that people have such an image. <laughs> good news, right? Saste mein mil rahe, kharid lo. Once the foreigners realize that you don't need security guards to go around Bombay, we're not going to get the stocks here at these prices ever again. Sure, sure. Now, uh, valuations, uh, you know, whatever said and done, it's a short-term phenomenon. You know, what matters in the long run is, uh, you know, how are earnings of the corporates. Uh, how are the current valuations, uh, you know, support fundraising for the companies and also how the earnings, uh, you know, the triggers for the drivers for the earnings look like in the short to medium and the long run in India? Anybody? So I think, you know, one must not look at short-term for earnings. Uh, there are businesses in this country uh, that have delivered, you know, mid-teens to, you know, mid-20 kind of percentage earnings growth over few decades. Uh, there are so many winners in the last decade uh, that have been able to compound their earnings very steadily. Uh, I also want people to realize that what has India gone through in the last decade? Uh, we have gone through five years of cleaning up of the banking system. Uh, you lost one year because of demonetization. Uh, you lost another year because of implementation of GST. Uh, you had an ILFS that happened to you. Uh, you had a RERA that came in which really slowed down real estate, which is the big growth engine of, you know, employment and consumption. Uh, so you had, you know, you had five years where you're actually cleaning up in the economy, right? And uh, thereafter, like I mentioned earlier also, you had, you know, two years of pandemic that hit India very badly uh, compared to other countries. And, uh, you know, also the war, high fuel prices. So you must look at what sort of earnings have been delivered in a period like this when we were undergoing all our, you know, restructuring, taking all the pain, taking all the hit. Now, what will happen to you is when the next 10 years are unfolding, I don't think we are going to see any internal restructuring of, that, of the magnitude that we have seen in the last 10 years. So I think earnings will do very well. Uh, what companies are not able to withstand is the volatility in input cost prices, a huge volatility in a very short period of time. I think that has happened because of deglobalization, breakdown of supply chains. Uh, that has happened because, uh, you know, we have gone through huge volatility uh, because of external factors uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, I think barring that, our companies are now well geared to grow. Uh, we believe that growth in the Indian economy uh, should be in the region of about 10 to 12 percent minimum nominal growth uh, once inflation settles down. 
otherwise you could see 14 to 16 percent growth and i think if you expect that sort of a growth uh, that's the lead indicator tell you where earnings will uh, follow and i don't think earnings will lag i think earnings will follow what the uh, gdp is going to grow at and high quality companies will be able to grow even faster the other point you all must realize is that indian industry and the traditional businesses are under invested how many new groups have actually come in india or have emerged in the cement industry in aluminium metals uh, passenger cars or except for tatas and except for maruti who's been putting big money uh, where has money come in infrastructure who has put up the next big engineering company we just have one lnt that's going on for like you know maybe 7 8 decades so we are under invested industry is consolidating so when the real big growth takes place you will see pricing power return you will see companies do well and at the end of the day right uh, you know one one uh, many industries have not even seen a decent amount of capex by the leading players so i think we are going to fall short of capacities uh, we are going to see a lot more consumption happening uh, you're going to see uh, exports firing you're going to see fdi coming in consumption happening you're going to see a uh, new export cycle opening up whether it's china plus one europe plus one so what is unfolding is even more exciting than what has gone by us so i think we must have the confidence that this is our time under the sun the next 5 10 years are very very promising for earnings and don't forget we are starting on a low base so you know if you ask me from 23 to maybe 30 31 uh, these are 7 8 years of of double digit growth uh, in earnings and i think corporate profits also as a percentage of gdp are an all time low at i think 5 or 6% sure. they used to be at uh, 10 11% so i think you will see somewhere we will come back in a very big way so i would request you all don't look uh, you know uh, into the rear view mirror uh, look at the windscreen look forward uh, the future is far more promising than any of you all can comprehend i think the story has just begun sure sure um in the entrance if you notice there is a big wall where uh, we displayed the ideas that change and in that most of the experts said that manufacturing you know it is the decade of manufacturing in india so what's your uh, view nilesh on that so in manufacturing i think the best story india has and there are many but i'm just focusing on one that's automobile maruti suzuki automobile is one manufacturing sector where india is exporting more than importing we are net exporter in two wheelers india is globally competitive you go to africa you go to latin america you go to eastern europe you go to southeast asia you proudly see made in india vehicle there honda hero now uh, bajaj tvs there was a time when there was fear that chinese two wheeler are coming into india and our companies will go down today we have packed them up and we are still progressing so clearly from the export parameter from the global domination from the economies of scale every context indian two wheelers indian four wheelers indian commercial vehicles indian auto components have done extremely well now not many people will know this but uh, in maruti's factory based on google searches three times leopard has entered they had to cordon off that area of the plant called the 
wildlife authorities tranquilize the leopard, send it back to jungle, open the area and start making cars again. Now this excitement is not available in Honda and Toyota factories in Japan. It's not available in Daimler and Volkswagen factory in Germany. Because Maruti knows how to manage leopard once in a while, that's why their stock over 20 years in US dollar terms since listing in 2003 to today have delivered more return than Honda, Toyota, Japan, Nissan and Suzuki put together. All Japanese automobiles excite, Amara Maruti excite. They have delivered more return than Volkswagen and Daimler-Benz put together. They have delivered more return than General Motors, Ford and whatever is left of Chrysler put together. They have delivered more return than Kia and Sangyong put together. Except Tesla, it is the best performing automobile stock for two decades. Gujarati mein kahawat hai, baap karta beto sawayo. The son is one and quarter times father. If you want real life example, look at Maruti. It sells more automobiles in India than what Suzuki sells worldwide and hence beta is bigger than the bab. Can we replicate Maruti in every manufacturing sector? We don't have such success story in many other sectors. If we can create Maruti equivalent examples in other sectors, manufacturing will be truly successful. We think now ingredients are in place. The train which we missed in the 80s where China became manufacturer to the world and we became back office to the world, I think is likely to get reversed. It's not a one year, two year, three year journey. It's probably 10 year, 20 year, 30 year journey. But like China, where manufacturing is about 40% of GDP, India's manufacturing should grow from below 25 to somewhere towards first 30, then 35, and hopefully someday to 40. That's the story of manufacturing in India, provided you know how to live with the leopard. So I think, you know, Satya has he's indirectly given you a message that during your next conference, if you have a leopard, you'll do better than Economic Times and Business Standard. Fine. So, uh, how are PLI schemes, uh, you know, uh, helping India in that aspect, Roshi? PLI schemes. No, I think the PLI scheme is uh, clearly incentivizing all of this. I think the good thing about the PLI is also uh, that it's coming at a time when uh, MNCs genuinely want to sort of uh, move uh, some of their dependency out of China. So I think it's a sweet coming together of uh, all these factors. Um, the production, co the labor cost advantage, uh, of course we have a growing population, growing working force, all of that is there. Um, so I think, uh, and of course uh, one must also sort of uh, consider the areas where the PLI scheme has been announced. I think one of the uh, shortcomings in the past has been that many of these manufacturing related incentives were directed more towards um, sort of fragmented industries, uh, more labor oriented perhaps. Uh, and I think we've now seen uh, the PLI scheme itself quite uh, 
quite progressive in its approach in the type in the type of industries that they are targeting. Uh, so, so I feel that uh, you know it's the the timing, the selection of the industries. Uh, I think the PLI clearly scores well on all of that. Sure, sure. So, while uh, we are uh, more inward looking now than ever before, uh, what is the kind of impact that we might have on exports if the global, you know, economy suffers? If for if some, for some reason or the other. So, I, I you know this whole notion that uh, global economy will slow down, exports will slow down. Uh, I find it a little stretched, right? So I've been hearing this for the 12 months. For example, that IT services exports are going to slow down. Apparently, I heard it 12 months ago, I heard it 6 months ago, I heard it yesterday. And this sort of notion doesn't seem to be grounded in reality. I remember IT services is India's largest export by far. Um, and similarly, if you take the broader picture on manufacturing, as I was explaining uh, 20 minutes ago, uh, on in sectors like mobile phones, healthcare devices, uh, API. Uh, if you add up mobile phone, healthcare devices, healthcare equipment, and API, it's roughly all three put together is $1.5 trillion of global GDP. Um, we barely have a share of this. These three industries, if we end up at 10% share over the next three years, you add $1.5, you add $150 billion to the Indian economy. Um, that's not that much because our economy is now 3.4 trillion, but you're adding roughly 5% uh, GDP growth. So that's the scale of opportunity. IT services today is 250, 250 billion dollars. The Western world services GDP is 15 trillion. Right? Western world services GDP is 15 trillion. Assume that 10% of that will come to India, which I'm pretty sure it will, because there are very few people in the West who want to do HR, payroll, accounting, marketing, sales. So Western world ka 15 trillion, 1.5 trillion comes to India. The 250 billion dollar IT services industry goes to 1.5 trillion in four or five years. So, so the numbers are actually quite easy to do. If you go to cities like Hyderabad, Pune, Bangalore, uh, Mohali, Gurgaon, you can see these cities exploding with growth. Similarly, as I was saying, you go to Vapi, uh, Baroda, Surat, you can see the, the pharma industry, the API industry, the spectrum industry exploding with growth. The growth is real, it's here, it's tangible. Uh, you can almost smell it in the air if you go to Baroda or Vapi, you can smell the chemical industry booming. And uh, the numbers are big, uh, everybody in this room can make money from it and let's hope the foreign investor also joins the party. Sure, sure. You know, we've heard very, very positive, uh, you know, responses about the Indian economy. Uh, is it because uh, most of them are here or equity fund managers or, you know, very bullish on the Indian economy? And what can go wrong for India, <laughs> Indian economy and the Indian companies, maybe in future? I think the main area which, uh, and I think we need to all be very careful of those of us as investors, um, uh, uh, journalists like yourself, we need to push the ante on corporate governance. We need to do a little bit more here. We have improved vastly from the days of Satyam, uh, from the DHFL debacle, etc. We have improved vastly. But I think given, uh, given the rate at which our country is going, given the rate at which domestic money is coming into big mutual fund houses such as the ones represented by the folks on my left, I think we owe it to the investor community both in India and abroad to push the ante on on accounting quality and corporate governance. That's probably the main area we need to look out for. Uh, things like FTX happen in America. Uh, Japan's had its share of accounting fraud. There's Enron, WorldCom, etc. We need to make sure we minimize the scope for that. From the economic point of view, 
we can't afford to make a self-goal. In 1947, we were at par with Japan in per capita GDP. In 60s, we were at par with South Korea. 80s, we were at par with China. Today, all these guys are way ahead of us. And that's because they have done many good things, but we have scored self-goal. The best example of Indian self-goal is Singur. Tata's, India's best business house was going to set up an automobile plant in a essentially backward area farmland. They tried for five years, couldn't do it, and finally they had to move out. They came to Sanand. They set up their factory in record 18 months. And today, if you go to Singur, people who push Tata's out are praying that Tata should come back. And if you go to Sanand, it's not Singapore yet, but it is prospering. Banks are flowing with deposits. There are jobs, there are shopping centers, there are factories, there is growth. If whole of India is going to follow Singur model, it is time to short India. If whole of India is going to follow Sanand model, it's time to go double long India. As practicalist, we have to believe that India will have more Sanands and less Singur. We'll have our ups and downs, but eventually states will become as big as today's India in the next two decades. But please don't score self-goal. In 75 years, we have scored many. Sure. Yeah, so I think, you know, India runs one big risk of continuity of reforms. Uh, we have had extraordinary leadership by our Prime Minister. We at least need the same team to carry on for, let's say, another one or two terms. And uh, I think achieve a lot of unfinished agenda, all the goals that they have spelt out. I think some of the good thing is in India, it's very difficult to implement things. But at the same time, it's very difficult to reverse it. So if you're actually paying your subsidies directly into the bank accounts, you're not going to go back to the old way of doing things. If GST is there, excise won't come back. If there is faceless assessment for income tax, they're not going to bring it back to the old way. So I think let the good, good part of reforms happen over the next five and ten years. Then I think, you know, India will be indifferent to who actually comes. You could even afford a Rahul Gandhi to rule the nation twenty years later, right? When all the reforms are over, everything is done, you're pretty, pretty safe, right? So I think you need continuity for at least two more terms for a sensible government. Uh, because there's a lot of unfinished reforms in agriculture, defense, in, you know, administering the country, divestment of PSUs. Some of these big ticket items will actually really take India to the next level. So I think that's something that we, we, we are, we run that risk. We need to see continuity for the next two terms at least. Sure, sure. Last word from you, Roshi. No, I'm again going to wear my fund manager's hat and reply to this. I think we need to focus genuinely on uh, the quality of companies that you are buying and the resilience of those companies, quality of uh, management, corporate governance. I think, you know, uh, Nilesh uh, sir talked about um, the, the journey of Maruti. Maruti. The journey of Maruti has happened under different political regimes, under different political climates, under differing macroeconomic situations that India has been through. And, you know, Maruti is just a name that we talked about, but the same is true of uh, many, many businesses uh, uh, in India. My, my point would only be this, that a lot of things we don't control. 
we don't control uh, or at least I like to think that uh, we don't have control over what is going to be the political climate in India over the medium term. We don't have control over how regulation will be shaped. But what we can control is identifying companies that will be able to traverse these differing political uh, scenarios, macroeconomic situations and so on and emerge stronger. So I would, as investor, as a fund manager, only urge that we need to put uh, effort into identifying, uh, identifying companies and winners uh, that can sort of go through variables that we can't control or which we can't predict. Sure, sure. With that positive note, uh, let's wrap the session and uh, hope India grows at a very healthy rate and corporates build bigger more so that leopards will not, cannot even enter our <laughs> premises. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Satya. I'm going to request all of you to come together for a group photograph. That's all for now in this episode, listeners. If you have any queries or suggestions, you can reach out to me on Twitter. My handle is at Satya Sontanam, S-A-T-Y-A-S-O-N-T-A-N-A-M. Or you can also write to us at mintmoney at livemint.com. Bye-bye. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities.